Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! Another wonderful episode of the Job Shop Show coming your way. Your host, Jay Jacobs, here with the owner of what I would call an all-American machine shop. Kurt Wagner of Wagner Machine in Champaign, Illinois, joins us. Wagner Machine is a second-generation machine shop, Kurt being the second generation, and from their website, it looks like they can do it all. A, a precision machine shop with all sorts of capabilities and an innovative mind in Kurt that doesn't say no. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Kurt. Thanks. So, it seems like you folks do some interesting things. Can you give me an example of one of the craziest jobs you've done at Wagner? Craziest jobs we've done. Uh, we've got a lot of crazy jobs, um, but I'm going to actually have to think on that one. Um, craziest job I've done that I'm allowed to talk about is what, may, <laughs> what makes this an interesting question. Um, well, let me ask you, why say, can't, what sort of jobs can't you talk about? Um, we have some jobs that are that fall under ITAR regulations where we're not allowed to disclose certain aspects of the job, um, mm -hmm. and we also do a lot of work for uh, research institutions where we are allowed to discuss the job after they publish papers for it, but before they publish papers or anything like that, we're limited. We're limited to what we are allowed to talk about. Sure. So usually those I just don't talk about them at all. So I don't. <laughs> so I don't. Uh, mess up and say something I wasn't supposed to. Um, but I would say the, the most interesting project we've worked on um, 
that really covers, it was cool because it covers almost everything that we do, is we worked on a high-resolution camera project with Duke University. Nice. Um, and that project was making a camera that had gigapixel resolution. And the way they did it was they had a large dome that was made out of aluminum that had a whole bunch of separate holes, a whole bunch of independent holes in it, and each hole had its own high-resolution camera. And then the image from all those cameras was stitched together into one ultra-high-resolution image. Um, and it was a cool project. We actually did that. It was with Duke University and a local company in town called Distant Focus. And the, the software behind it to stitch the imaging together was really cool. The tolerances were completely insane. Um, mm -hmm. And what was cool is we did the dome, which is a really large five-axis machine part. Um, and we also did all of the lens barrel assemblies, um, which were high-precision turn parts. So we had Swiss turn parts. We had turn mill parts. We had five-axis mill parts. Um, there was a little bit of everything that we do involved in that whole project. So, You were in Illinois and Duke University is in North Carolina. Did you get connected with them through the other company, local, the other local company? Yep. Yeah. So we got connected through Distant Focus. Um, so do you have a was, reputation? Do you have a reputation in the area for doing this sort of work? You, are you, one of the shops that are known as the go-to guys? I would, I'm not really sure actually what our local reputation is. We do, we do a lot of your typical machine shop work locally. So we'll do repair parts for other, other factories around town and things like that. And then, but we also do research work for the University of Illinois in town. Um, and that, that's how we got connected with this in focus originally. And then they do work nationwide. Um, mm -hmm. So, but overall, most of our customers come back to us because we, like you said in the intro, I don't say no. So I usually explain it to people as I get bored easily. So throw something crazy at me because I need, I need something to work on, right? So, <laughs> so I would say overall, that's probably our, what people know us for is that we don't say no. And if they've got a really tough problem, uh, we do a lot of help with design for manufacturability and things like that. Do you do production work as well? Yep. Um, production work is the majority of what we do, um, but we have a dedicated prototype shop that does low volume anywhere from one to around 50 piece quantities. Um, and then that's about, we've got about, it's probably about a third of what we do. And then the rest of what we do is production. So. With the prototype and production, there is a sometimes different mindset and mentality of how you produce the parts. Do you have your prototype group physically located in a separate part of the shop from the production folks? And do they have their own equipment or is that commingled? So the prototype guys have their own area. We have our three biggest departments are our production mill, production lathe, and then the, the job shop, which is prototype work. Um, and the job shop is actually in between the mill and lathe department because they have their own dedicated CNC mills and lathes, and they also have kind of free reign of the shop to use anything in the production department as well. So if, there's a, if they're working on a job that requires a specific piece of equipment in one of the production departments, they can use 
that as well. So they just situ are situated nicely between the two departments. And um, we also end up with our prototype guys helping the production departments on a fairly regular basis. Um, if they're having a problem troubleshooting something like that, something like then uh, the uh, prototype guys often will help out with the production guys when they get stuck on something. So, so. it seems that you understand that the way of thinking of making parts in the prototype area is different so you do want to keep them a little bit separate even though they are in the same building uh, I get I guess I had a really long question to that yes they are in a separate area and we do treat the work completely differently um, so there's a there's definitely a different mentality to doing prototype work versus production work we had in particular at rapid a we found out even though the quantities were low that we were in essence the production supplier for sheet metal parts for a variety of customers more because the typical production shops would not, just not want to do quantity five or ten they didn't think that that was production but these folks would buy the same part every three or six months or maybe even once a year and we physically had two buildings over time because I found that I, I called it prototypes in production were sort of like oil and water and if you ask the folks if you particularly if, if you didn't have a separation of roles and you treated the jobs the same the one job you may work on was prototype and the next job production you just started getting smoke coming out of their ears because you had made them think in different ways and it just wasn't fair and some folks yeah. really like prototypes other folks really like production and put people where they're best suited where their strengths are so we, we actually yeah. got to the point where we physically separated them but to your point we would often have the prototype sheet metal folks come over and problem solve troubleshoot in the production uh, environment, and that was that was great having them available. Really helpful. Yeah. So what I like about your shop, you have a variety of equipment: the lathes, the mills, the five axis. You got a water jet, wire EDM, grinders, a CMM for reverse engineering, probably some other stuff that I can't think of. But why all that equipment? Is that just because? you having the short attention span and a project came in and you needed to buy something for it or what 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 led to the variety of equipment you have in the shop i think a big part of that was a big part of that was probably curiosity we i'm not the only one here who's really curious about things um and we have a really strong desire to understand the process from start to finish um so a big part of it was just that job shop mentality. I, I'm going to get this job in, and I've got to figure out a way to, to do it. And over time, that ended up, ended up uh, with us purchasing a variety of different types of equipment so that we could finish the more complex jobs we were getting in. So, you know, we might get a job in that requires EDM. We might have got a job in that required EDM work and outsourced that a couple times. And... Once we did that a couple times, understood the process a little bit better, 
um, and maybe started to see more demand for that, we pretty quickly decide, okay, we want to bring that process in-house, and it's for two reasons. It's, it's so that we can understand and control the process really well, and it's also for lead time because if we've got a four-week lead time and our vendor's got a four-week lead time, then we're then we're really getting our lead time long for the customers. So it was from a, a control of the lead time end as well as a control and knowledge of the process uh, aspect. So, yeah, that, make, that makes sense. Do you have a philosophy when you bring equipment in of buying used equipment or only buying new equipment or do you start with used and go to new? How do you look at that? Um, for... For most of our history, we have bought all used equipment, um, and that would be anything from, uh, you know, a, a piece of equipment that was five or ten years old to something that was just two or three years old coming off a lease somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but as we've started getting into more advanced processes, the Swiss turning and five-axis milling and things like that, um, we've made a switch to only buying new because... Uh, we don't want to get a piece of equipment that somebody else might have damaged and then end up struggling with that process for reasons that we don't even know. So with the more advanced equipment, we find that it's definitely worth buying new. Uh, you get the support from the OEM, and you know that you've got a piece of equipment that's in good shape from the beginning. It's a, if you're having problems, it's something you're doing. It's not the machine. <laughs> so. Well, that falls into a theme that I was always striving to eliminate variability and mm -hmm. there's enough variables that you do have to figure out discover particularly with new equipment and new processes so the hidden ones that may not be obvious that's that's a great reason along those lines the five axis is that a new piece of equipment you purchased um, all of our five-axis machines we purchase new or uh, or as an engineering or display or demo machine from the mm -hmm. manufacturer. So um, I think I'm pretty sure all of the uh, five-axis Herco mills we got were either engineering or demo or demo machines that they had. Um, and then the Robo Drill five-axis machines, which are our new compact, really high-speed five-axis machines, those we all purchased new um, because the configuration we wanted was something that nobody else had yet. So there was nothing, there was nothing what, else out there like, like ours uh, at the time we started getting them. What was the configuration that made it unique? Um, we got the newest version of RoboDrill, which is the RoboDrill Advanced, and it has smaller, uh, a higher resolution for the encoders, so it has a better positioning accuracy for the machine. What's um, the, what's that? How, how the tight are you? positioning accuracy, what was that? How tight do you get, yeah. I actually don't know what the spec is off the top of my head, but it's, uh, it allows us to get substantially better surface finishes. Um, it's still not on the level of a really uh, high-end, extremely accurate five-axis machine like a Yazda or uh, some of the really high-end Makinos or a Kern or something like that. Uh -huh. uh, but it's like it was half the resolution of what a regular RoboDrill was. Um, 
And the other thing that those, the advanced machine has is it has a servo-driven turret. Robo-drills have always had a turret that was driven by a gear on the spindle. So these have a servo turret which allows it to change tools even faster. Um, so you're under, you're under two and a half second tool change time from 24,000 RPM back to 24,000 RPM and in the cut. So really? They're, in, they're insanely fast, yeah. It will be in the cut, 24,000 RPM, stop the spindle, change the tool, back in the cut at 24,000 RPM, two and a half seconds. I like that. They're, they're completely insane. Um, but we got those with production in mind. We, Over time, we realized that our higher volume five axis was all leaning toward production work. So things like the tool change time, spindle RPM, and all of that was a really big deal. And then the other thing that we got on these that was uh, that's pretty cool is we are using direct drive trunnions. So the trunnions aren't a worm drive or anything like that. They're direct drive. I, I believe they're 200 RPM for the B axis and the C axis. Um, so they're extremely fast. They're good for simultaneous five axis, which we don't do a lot of, um, but when you need it, you need it. Yeah. Um, so really we, we bought those with kind of our future needs in mind. How much less expensive are they than the, the real high end five axis with the real tight tolerances? Uh, you can, uh, you can spend. I mean, if you want to go with the, I don't even, I don't even want to really throw prices out there because I don't know. But I mean, I would say you're looking at two to three times the cost of a robo drill to get something yeah. with really high. When you're down to you know micron positioning accuracy and things like that, mm -hmm. um, you're looking at, at two to three times would be your starting level to get into that right. type of a machine. It really gets to the number of spindles that you have for the do same dollars cutting metal and. Rapid, I bought a horizontal machining center with a pallet changer and it worked really well. It was very productive, but I stopped buying them because I could buy three verticals for the same mm -hmm. price. And I thought about it and it was going to take a lot of labor, extra labor costs to really make a difference in terms of the paying 300,000 versus 100,000 for yep. a, a machining center. Uh, so yeah, totally, the, under, the totally understand are, that. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is people say that, that horizontals are good because they can help you automate your process. So, you know, you get a horizontal, it has, they usually at least have a pallet changer where you've got one pallet in the machine mm -hmm. and one that you're loading. Uh, but a lot of them will have a pallet pool or whatever. And for us, the parts we machine are so small. Most of our mill parts you can pick up in one hand. Mm -hmm. um, so our parts are so small that w the footprint of that machine just is not justifiable. We can fit three robo drills mm -hmm. in the space of one of those horizontals for the same price, have three spindles running. And if we need to automate something, what we've been doing is just using robotic automation for part loading. Um, it doesn't take up a lot of extra space and it doesn't require fancy tombstones or anything like that. We just have the robot load into a pneumatic vise on the machine. I want to get back to the, the robotics, which you've implemented, but before we get there, I want to just talk a little bit more about your shop. The five axis, you started out, you have 
some Hercos, but that's not the typical vertical mill that you have in the shop. Why'd you go to the Hercos for the five axis? Um, when we got into five axis, uh, a little over 10 years ago now, um, Herco was really the only option out there that it was the only, they were the only manufacturer that was offering high end features like tool center point management, um, things that really make your setups fast and easy. They were the only, only manufacturer out there offering those high end options in five axis at a, at what we thought was a reasonable price. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything, everybody else that was doing five axis was probably one and a half to two times the cost of what the Hercos were. And the, and the accuracy was really pretty much the same. Uh, we bought, every Herco we have has two and a half arc second encoders on the rotaries, which is substantially more accurate than a lot of, a lot of more expensive five axis machines. And we run almost all of our five axis parts through our CMM to verify the accuracy and the Hercos have the features and options that we needed to be able to set up jobs quickly and hold the tolerances we needed at a reasonable price. So that's, that's how we got into that. And when we started, we were doing strictly prototype work. I, I don't think we did a quantity of over 50 pieces in probably the first three or four years we had the five axis machines. It was all prototype work. And now you do do production five axis work. Yeah, that's grown into production work of specifically really small parts. Is it more you've gained the expertise and the work's coming to you, or my suspicion is that because of the precision and the capabilities of machine tool technology today, that parts are becoming more designed for five axis and tighter tolerances. There's just more of those out there. The parts are smaller, and you're asking more of the part. Am I wrong, or what, what do you see? I would say it's probably 50-50 on that. I would say there are definitely, the complexity of parts is increasing drastically, um, but also having five-axis capability just gives us a better way to make parts that people have historically thought of as three-axis parts. So, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, we have a lot of parts that, we, that we've run in our production mill department on three-axis machines in the past, that we had to flip four, five, six times to finish the part. And on a five axis, we almost never have more than two ops. Uh, a lot of times I call it one and a half ops because if you have a side that has no features and all you're doing is facing the material off, I call yeah. that a half because you're not really yeah. doing much to it. <laughs> yeah. So It's funny. I looked at that, the three axis parts running those, we had the trunnion tables so that's how we approach the five axis but I just wouldn't let my sales guys sell five axis parts because I wanted to sell three axis parts and get the same price as the guy flipping it five or six times but doing like what you yep. said you you still you can charge the higher price but it takes you less time it's just a little more investment in equipment and programming up front yep yeah, and now uh, the the advanced features that I was talking about that nobody else had now now uh, Haas will even let you put a, a two-axis trunnion on a three-axis mill and use tool center point management on that trunnion even though the machine is not built as an integrated five-axis like their UMC series and things like that. You can put a two-axis trunnion on a three-axis mill 
buy the option for tool center point management and run it just like anybody else runs a five axis machine. Can you define tool center point management for folks who may not understand what that is? I can give it a shot. Okay. Um, basically, <laughs> you, uh, well, the old, the old way, the way people, I start out with four axis. The way people set up a four axis machine is if you're doing multiple sides of the part, you might have a G54 offset for one side, a G55 for another side, G56 for another side, um, or sometimes people will program all their tools off the center of rotation to the fourth axis and then uh, do their programming all off center line. Well, with tool center point management, you can have one work offset wherever you want it on your part. Usually it's with the trunnion standing straight up and you'll send, put it in the center of your part or something of that nature, and you touch off, you find your zero at that one location and touch all your tools off to that one location. And tool center point management is basically a bunch of fancy math that the machine does so whenever the machine tips the trunnion over or rotates the part, it always knows volumetrically where that part is. So when you tip the, tip the trunnion over, the zero point that you originally set is no longer in the same place in X, Y, and Z in the machine as where it started. And the machine knows itself well enough to be able to say, okay, the zero location has shifted this far in X, Y, and Z, and then keep running. So instead of having to set up multiple work offsets, you set it up one time and hit go. Um, for three plus two in five axis machining where you're just indexing the part to a position in machining and indexing to another in machining, uh, I like to make fun of our five axis guys uh, just a little bit and tell them that five axis is just three axis for dummies. Because <laughs> on a three axis, you have to, you have to do one op and then you flip your part over, you set your new zero, you indicate everything in, make sure your work holding's great, and then do that one, and then you have to set up the third op. On five axis, set up one time and hit go. So, so tool center point management is really important. I think you did a great job of explaining that. <laughs> Thank you. How long has that been out that it's been what I'll call common? Or um, basic I would say... That's one of those things that was, for the people who are into five axes, it's been around in common for a long time. Um, but I think that's one of the things that made a lot of shops scared of five axis for the longest time was it mm -hmm. just seemed like it was so overwhelmingly complicated to figure out what the machine's doing. And they didn't even know to ask about, they didn't know what it was, didn't know what to ask for. So they just thought, oh, well, it's, not any different than a three axis. I'm going to have to do all these different setups to get one part yeah. set up. And, uh, but it's been common. I mean, like I said, Herco, uh, all of the high end guys were offering that for years. Herco was offering that back when we got into it. Um, Haas started offering that when they came out with their UMC series of machines. And I, I'm really bad with dates, but I'm sure that's been five plus years ago now. So, and really when Haas came out with that, then everybody knew what it was at that point because Haas is just kind of right. everywhere. Um, so I think that was, that you know, Herco has been trying to get that message out for years. And I think they just didn't have the reach. And I think when Haas finally started doing that as well, I think that's been really good for the industry in general because now everybody's starting to learn that. Um, and, you, and you can use that on whatever machine you get. 
Um, but now people are starting to understand what it is a little bit more. If I'm a shop owner who doesn't have five axis in my shop yet, but I think there's opportunities for parts, what would you suggest as a way to get started? Dip your toes in the water. I, I think you just have to do it. Um, I, you know, it's for us, it turned out to be a pretty simple justification because we looked at all of the work that we had and we saw that easily half of the jobs that we did could be run faster and better on a five-axis machine on a three-axis. So we were looking at it and thinking, well, this is an opportunity to get new work, more advanced work, hopefully higher margin work, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And and we, at the same time, we were going, and if that doesn't happen, it will still allow us to do the work we're already doing better. So mm -hmm. it really, you know, we're sitting there looking at it going, well, we're gonna, we need more capacity. Do we buy a three-axis machine like we always have, or do we buy a five-axis one that's going to give us, you know, more capability uh, for advanced parts that we're currently not doing as well as improve our current processes, and it just seemed like a no-brainer. So. The price can be a little scary, but what would you <laughs> what would you say to an owner the risk is of buying a used five axis versus taking the plunge and buying a new five axis? The biggest thing I would say on that is that even though I call it uh, three axis for dummies, it's it is still kind of a whole new ball game. So I think the biggest issue with buying a used one, especially for your first machine is that you won't have the support you would get if you bought a new one. So mm. if you buy a, if you buy a new five axis machine, um, they are, they're extremely motivated to make sure that you succeed. Mm. And I think, you know, part of that's because anybody selling machines wants people to like their machines and to do, mm. to do well. Um, but I think part of that also is that even as five axis is becoming more common, it still isn't by any means a standard. You know, it's still a relatively small percentage of shops who have it. So anybody selling five axis machines, we're all actually kind of working together on that to get people to embrace that a little bit more. And so they, they really are motivated to make sure people succeed when they get it. If you get a used one, you just don't get that, that same level of support. So, I also and, think, and you could, have, you could also have the mysteries. Like you get one, somebody's somebody's crashed mm -hmm. it terribly. You've got something that's a little sloppy on the machine, and you don't know. You know, you have no idea what the problems are. So between the support and making sure that you're starting off with something that's in good shape in the first place, um, mm -hmm. I don't think you'd want to buy a, a used one for your first machine. I know several shops who. Uh, who do really high-end, crazy five-axis work, and they always buy machines coming off a lease. So they always buy a two- to three-year-old machine. That's the only thing they do. Um, but they actually have a really rigorous testing process that they go through for any machine they're going to buy. So they have to machine sample parts and do a ball bar test and all sorts of things before they'll consider buying a machine. And they've developed that test over, they've been doing five axis long before we were, they've developed that test over the last 20 years almost. Hmm. So once again, I don't think that's something that you'd want to deal with for your first five axis machine. 
I think that uh, perhaps another way of saying it is you want to take away the variables that would perhaps make it not successful because yes. if it doesn't work, you're going to, you're going to be afraid of five axis. You're going to look at an investment that went sour and you're not going to try it again when there are so many advantages of having five axis. You want to really make sure that you, you, you bring in and you're successful the first time. Yeah. And I, uh, I just realized right now, I was thinking about it. I, I said something a minute ago. I said, I was talking about people who were trying to sell five axis machines and I, and I used the word we, I included myself in that. And I don't sell five axis machines, <laughs> um, but I do everything in my power to encourage people to at least consider them. Because mm -hmm. um, I really do think that advancing your capabilities, having better technology and all that, that's the only way that an American manufacturer is going to be able to compete in the world. Um, so I, I don't feel large amounts of competition. I don't feel threatened by other shops. I, I honestly, in a lot of ways, feel like we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. um, so like I said, I don't sell five-axis machines, but I will encourage anybody to buy a five-axis machine, and I've done a lot of research on everything that's out there pretty much. Um, so, you know. I'll talk, I'll talk to people all day long about five-axis machines. Let them know anything I know. <laughs> well, I appreciate your generosity. I agree with you, and I think that it's one of those things that people do move around from company to company, and the more people, the more companies who are using five-axis technology, the more it's going to be brought to companies who don't perhaps have it and that's the way that we we see the technology that is going to make american custom part manufacturers more efficient so it may be a a short shorter term loss perhaps for a shop if that happens with an individual but in the global scheme of things you're going to benefit in the long run because you're going to have a labor pool that's going to be more skilled in five axis yep. so really appreciate you saying that I have a question for you regarding the number of shifts that you run. How many do you, do you run? Uh, we only have one shift. Um, we were flexible with our start and end times a little bit, um, mm -hmm. but we work one shift. Our standard shift is uh, 7 to 4.30, Monday to Thursday, and then we do 7 to 11 on Friday. Um, but we have some people who start a little earlier and get off a little earlier. Um, but yeah, we're, we're one shift shop. We're open during the day. We're not open all night. Uh, mm -hmm. We let our, our robots and our bar loaders and everything else take the night shift. Great. So. And, and hold on to that. Cause we are going to, we are going to get back to that. <laughs> the shop started in 1982. Your folks started it. Yep. On April fool's day. <laughs> <laughs> and are they still involved in the business? My mom is retired, uh, but she keeps up on everything anyway because that's just the way she is. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad just turned 70 last month, and he is still here every day making parts. So he's one of our, he's one of our uh, prototype guys. He mm -hmm. mainly does manual machining. Um, and then he also helps with a lot of troubleshooting and just kind of process development anywhere in the shop where we need it. 
Um, so yeah, he's he's still here every day. Uh, I don't think he's going anywhere. So he's <laughs> he's offloaded a lot of the worries to you then. He won't he won't have anything to do with the uh, business side of things. He just wants to do machining, and that's what he that's all he's ever wanted to do. I. I tell people I think he's been grumpy ever since he hired his first employee because all he ever wanted to do is machining. He doesn't – the business thing – business side is not his thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, it's not a bad philosophy. It's, it's really what we do. We don't do any sales. We don't do any marketing. We don't do any of that. Mm -hmm. um, we've, we've got our website, and that's it. But all of our growth has been word of mouth, um, and it's really based on that. It's, you know, you do a good job and people are going to come back and tell other people about you. So. Obviously, it's working for you guys. <laughs> you had made a comment before we started recording that you are a numbers guy, and that really resonated with me because I am a numbers guy too. But for the listener, what does that mean? Can you put that into context for us? Um. I like to look at things from every possible angle. So um, we've been using a, uh, an integrated ERP system since 2004. So all of our, what was that? Which, which system? Uh, we use M1 from ECI. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, that handles everything we do from start to finish. So our quotes are entered in M1. Uh, sales orders and jobs are enter entered in M1. Uh, we track uh, our quality in M1, uh, purchase orders, everything is done, payroll, everything is done through M1. Um, and that's really awesome because we can, we can dig into the data and get numbers for almost anything you could ever imagine. Um, and we do that. We, and we collect numbers that we don't even know what we're going to do with them yet. We're going, hey, this would be an interesting thing to know. Can we, can mm -hmm. we get that, can we compile that information off out of, out of, out of something? And we'll start looking at it, even if we don't know exactly what we want to do with it, start looking at it, uh, look at it in a weekly meeting. Um, and over time, we usually end up figuring out exactly what we want to do with it. But it helps to look at our business for, you know, a lot of people want to know, you know, how many, the basics, you know, how many dollars worth of work are you getting in, getting, shipping out, things like that. But we can look at that on a, a quoted hours completed on an employee basis, on a machine by machine basis, uh, which is really, uh, that makes the five axis machines look even better. Uh, so you look at quoted hours completed and dollars of work completed, all of that stuff. We can look at that by machine, by department, by individual, by customer, by whatever we want. Um, so, yeah, we look at all sorts of numbers and then all the financial, num normal financial numbers that everybody looks at. The accounting's done in the package, too? Yep. That's, that's really important to us. We, uh, a lot of systems uh, do everything except for accounting or everything except for accounting and HR or something like that. And having the accounting in there is great because all of our data is, is uh, live data. We don't have any stale data. If I want to report on something, I open the software, I click on the report, punch in a couple parameters, a date range, whatever I want, and I have the most, ac most accurate up-to-date data that I can get. So. Can you give me an example of a metric perhaps 
that you measure that other shops aren't thinking about? Actually, I don't. Well, you would share. You, you would share. You shared, you shared I, one uh, with me. Uh, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll feed, I'll feed it to you. What was, what, was, what was the one I told you? And I'll talk, talk that one to death. If I told you, I'm okay with it. But a lot of them, a lot of them, we, uh, we feel like are really, are really helping us build our competitive advantage just from looking at the data different than, than other people do. What, remind me of what the one I said was. I don't remember. <laughs> Okay. Well, I think this one's pretty innocuous, and but it's a it's a it's a good way of looking at your estimating department. And you said, how oh, many yeah. quote dollars or per how hour. many dollars quoted per hour do I have to have an estimator do to feed the shop? Because you only yep. have so many estimators, and you know what your win rate is. I thought that was a unique yep. way of looking at it, and one that. I probably had the data to look at it rapid, but I never put mm -hmm. my, a number to it. Yeah, that uh, that came up just last week. You know, we we talk about it on occasion, but it came up last week. We were uh, I got two of our two of our estimators, we call them project managers, together uh, mm -hmm. to work on a to work on a little project, and we worked on it for half an hour, and we got done. And I said, man, that's a that's a thousand dollar email we're sending out right now. Um, so, <laughs> right. so, you know, cause we sat down and we had two, two of them working on it. I don't count my time. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the odd man out. I don't, my time is not billable in any way. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, we calculated that just a rough number, our project managers or estimators have to do a thousand dollars an hour worth of quote. They have to quote a thousand dollars an hour, uh, worth of parts to be able to, get enough work in the door to feed the shop. So, and it's a really useful metric to have because that, you know, it's a way to see how effective they are. Uh, we can look at their win rate and things like that as well, but it gives us an idea how the shop's doing overall, how each project manager's doing. Once again, we can look at that per customer. If we have somebody that we're always quoting for and we never, never win any of the orders, then, uh, <laughs> then we're either we need to make an adjustment of some sort, right? So, yeah. Yeah. How many project managers do you have? Three. So. I don't know if you've ever done this. It, it, I did it on a lark at Rapid. I had ten estimators in the sheet metal group, and I just it just came to me. So I picked ten parts from very simple complex and had each of them quote it was the range it was the range it was all all sorts of different processes etc and i just wanted to see how each of the estimators compared to the other estimator and it actually was shocking how far apart the they were from the median and the average. And if I encourage the listener, if you don't understand the difference between median and average, that's important in understanding numbers. But I don't know if you've ever done that to look at the estimators. I've never taken a package of parts and had them all do that. But regularly, we will, I'll, I'll have one of them ask me to review something that they're quoting. 
I'll take a look at it, and the first thing I'll do is I'll take it to the other two guys, and I'll ask them, hey, what do you think about this? Just get, get some rough numbers from them to see. And it's interesting because they are so close but still so far apart at the same time. <laughs> there's so, there's, it's like, yeah, that's pretty close. And you think about it and you go, no, it's not close. That's 20% different, right? You know, but, you know we, I mean, right. we might be quoting a, a production part, right? You're quoting this production part. Somebody wants 10,000 of these and they're going to be a buck. Somebody says a buck 50 a piece. And the other guy comes up to a buck 70 a piece. Wow, that's only 20 cents. And you're going, right? No, that's a huge percentage difference. <laughs> so it, it so does make, it's kind does of make a difference. Yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, and and when you get into prototype work, then the then the swings are, you know, a lot more dollars, but the percentage usually seems like it stays about the same. We're between the three guys we've got and myself, I think we're usually within everybody'll be within about 20%. Mhm. So, what I what I found fascinating was is that the let's say that a part should have been quoted at a thousand dollars that was the average and we might have the low was five hundred fifty dollars and then we might have somebody who quoted it at two thousand dollars and you look at that and you're like oh my god but the total price for the package between all the ten estimators was typically they were in a band of plus or minus ten percent for the total package. So it evened out over a number of parts, but that really gave me data to say, aha, this is why I have to protect myself against cherry picking on quotes because the odds are my estimator will get something underpriced and that's the job will win and then he'll overprice <clears throat> other parts and we won't win those that we really should. So we had a strategy so that customers wouldn't cherry pick quotes and we developed some ways that the complex parts, we always protected ourselves and we often gave a discount on the total package if you bought all the parts quoted and made sure that each of the individual parts as much as possible were priced at least to hopefully break even. So. Yeah. Yeah, just, I just, yeah, just, it's one of those numbers things that you really start to get into it and, but you have to get into the numbers. Yep. The, yeah, we usually, there are some customers who will, who will send out an RFQ with a handful of line items on it and they specify this, these are going to be split up, right? And you have to quote mm -hmm. that completely differently because you've got to be safe on every single part. Yeah, uh, a lot makes a, a lot more. You have to be way more careful. A lot more work goes into it. I feel. You also run your shop in some unconventional ways, and one of the ways that you shared is you don't have a dedicated programming department. That's yep. different than a lot of shops your size. Why have you not gone to a dedicated programming department? There are several reasons. Um, the first one is that I really do believe that people should have the opportunity to, to advance as far as their skills allow. So I've never liked the idea of having, you know, two or three programmer spots 
and nobody else has a chance to program, dabble in it, do anything, uh, because I don't have any more spots. So that's that's one of the one of the reasons we've done it that way. Um, another reason is flexibility overall. Um, the more people I have who are able to program at some level or another, the more I'm able to adapt my schedule and workload to the jobs that come in. So if I have a bunch of production work at the moment, then somebody who can program can do setups and run a machine, do whatever. And if we have somebody order who orders, uh, or a bunch of customers who order uh, prototype work, I can take on more prototype work because I also have the programming capacity mm. by having multiple programmers. Um, but the other thing that I think a lot of people don't think about is that the typical way shops run where you've got a programming department and everybody else, um, you end up taking, taking somebody and making them a programmer. They usually started out as a machinist. They start doing programming. And in, in the beginning, they're involved on the shop floor. They write a program. They go out. They're working with the guy who's going to set it up seeing how it goes, and over time they get less and less involved with the machining side and they're just a programmer. And I firmly believe that the further you get from machining, the less efficient you get as a programmer because mm. you start, you're, you're separated from the end product, you're separated from the result. Um, you can send out a program that's okay and expect the setup guys to tweak it or do something like that. Um, so by having our guys do the programming and then usually setting up their own jobs, they are motivated to make a program that's as good as they possibly can so that they don't make their own life miserable when they're setting right. up or running a job. Um, so I think that's a big thing, too. And we, we encourage all of our programmers to uh, test out new features in the software when it comes out, uh, test out new types of tooling or work holding or anything like that, and once again, if a new tool comes out and you've got a guy who's a programmer, doesn't do any machining anymore, doesn't get to see how, how much better that tool works than something else, you know, that you're not going to adopt the newer technology as fast, I don't think. Mm. So that's, you know, there are all sorts of headaches that come with having a lot of people able to program too and doing kind of programming on the fly on the shop floor. There are tons of headaches and little downsides and everything else to it as well. I, I can't tell you 100% sure that my way is the best, um, but it works for us, and our employees seem to really like it too. So There is something for keeping the employees happy. <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's, that's important. I find that, I find that very important. <laughs> Because I am, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit like my dad on that. I would like to not have to deal with HR too much if I don't have to. So, yeah. <laughs> so if I can keep everybody happy, it's a, it's a definite plus. <laughs> Before we get to the automation, because I really want to chat about that, I saw that you have a uniform allowance. Do you have uniforms on your shop floor? Um, we just do uh, Wagner machine shirts. So we've got T-shirts and polos and. Uh, we've got some other stuff. We've got jackets and hats and other stuff people can buy. Um, but yeah, we do. Uh, we have a an allowance every six months for people to get new shirts. I like that. that that's yeah, nice. We it, also do because they we wear it, they wear it outside the shop too, of course. Yeah, they do. I got a call from somebody on there who uh, made on their motorcycle who made somebody unhappy once. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> there's pluses and minuses to everything. Um, but yeah, we do the, the shirts and then we also have an allowance for safety toed shoes and prescription mm-hmm. safety glasses, things like that. Yeah. So. All right. Automation. Again, it's a way that you are perhaps a little unconventional. Tell me how yeah, you got into auto. Tell me how you got into automation. Oh well, so so the boring stuff first. I mean, we've been doing uh, bar loaders on our lathes for for years, probably almost twenty years ago. We got our first lathe with a bar loader mm-hmm. on it, um, and that's pretty standard. A lot of shops do it. Uh, nothing real crazy about it. Easy to do, but uh, robotic automation. Uh, getting into that was a little bit different. So as I mentioned earlier, my dad's still in the business. He's primarily a manual machinist in our prototype shop, and um, he uh, takes a little convincing when it comes to new technology sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, he was forbidding me to get robots. I wanted to get a robot and test it out. I thought it would be a good fit, and he forbid me to buy a robot. Um, and one of his friends does a lot – has a business that has a lot of automation and both of us had been teaming up on him trying to convince him to get a robot and he would not let me buy a robot and his friend called me up one day and said so I was thinking about this your dad said you're not allowed to buy a robot and I said yeah and he said did he tell you you're not allowed to have a robot at this point he's got my attention and uh, and I said no I've not been forbidden to have one I've just been forbidden to buy one why, why do you uh, say this and he said, well, we've got this, our first robot we ever bought is a, is a size that we don't use anymore. We've standardized around smaller ones and bigger ones. And so I've just got this one sitting over in the corner not doing anything. And if you'd like to come pick it up, you can have it. So uh, that's how we ended up getting into robotic automation. I went up and uh, picked up the robot, brought it back, set it next to the machine I wanted to automate. Uh, had an unpleasant talk with Dad because <laughs> he, he just assumed I bought it. Uh, bought it anyway. Uh, he calmed down once he found out that I. Uh, he calmed down once he found out I didn't pay for it, and then he got more irritated when he found out that I got it from his friend. So, <laughs> so he doesn't like us conspiring, uh, but he is now a believer as well. So we got that robot. Um, we decided, uh, in, in my typical fashion, we decided to automate the most complex process in the shop. So we decided <laughs> to automate one of our five-axis machines. I was going, if you're going for it, you might as well go all the way. So, uh, so we automated one of our five-axis machines, and we did the full automation process ourselves. We started from the ground up. We just had a robot. We built our own cage, did all of our own safety, safety stuff, light curtains, uh, interlocks, everything. Um, and it took us over a year to get that first robot up and going, uh, doing it kind of as a side project whenever we had time. Um, and within a year after getting that going, we had another robot sell. Uh, it, it was obvious after, you know, three months of running it that we should have got into automation a long time ago. Um, let, let me ask you, you said we. Obviously, you were a big driver of it. Who else in the company was involved in getting it up and running and making it work? So I think we had some skeptics, uh, a, a pretty good number of skeptics, just thinking that we were never going to actually finish the project and get it going, uh, mm-hmm. especially as it draw, drug on past the six-month mark. Um, but as soon as it started running, 
I think everybody became a believer. I mean, it's won my dad over, and if you can win my dad over, then then you've pretty much won everybody over. So our maintenance well, guys love them. Our machinists love them. Everybody, everybody loves them. I, but I want to understand how you – it had to have been beyond you. So how did you get other uh, team members at Wagner to buy in and want the – want to get this robot up and running and contribute? I think that I'm pretty fortunate to be surrounded by people who are, who are almost as curious as I am or in some mm -hmm. cases more than I am. So for our maintenance guys and machinists, it really was just a new, it was a new technology to try. You know, we're trying new tools and work holding and stuff like that every day. Mm -hmm. And this was just a bigger version of that. It was something new. We didn't know exactly how we were going to use it, what it was going to, what it was going to, what it was going to do, whether it was going to be good for what we were doing or not. Um, but it was something to try. So uh, we're all we're all pretty curious around here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was our maintenance guys uh, worked on it primarily as we were getting it set up because they were doing mm -hmm. all the safety stuff. And my uh, my lead maintenance guy is. Uh, is now our main robot programmer. Um, who who did then, program it initially? Um, so I learned how to program it, and our my lead my maintenance lead learned how to program it, um, and then we had a couple machinists who also learned how to program it. So there were hmm. there were four of us, I think, were the main ones who who learned how to do that up front. And what so, was the application for the first? trial run we were doing machine tending of a of of small parts we primarily had a little round part that we were loading into one of our five axis mills um a little one inch diameter blank mm -hmm. that we would load and machine into an oddball shape because it was five axis and then uh they would unload it and grab the next blank and load it and actually our first project we were we uh we were loading a five axis machine and we decided we're really going for it. So our first first one, we were actually loading two blanks at a time as well. So, <laughs> so it, was a, okay. it was a good time. Um, but yeah, we uh, we when we first got the robot and started working on it, we didn't have a specific job we were setting it up for. We're going we load parts in this size range, you know, something something you know, baseballish size or smaller probably. We're going to load parts in that size range, and uh, we set it up for that, and as we got closer and closer, we uh, we ordered grippers and things like that. Got got everything that was kind of fit to that size range, and when it was ready to go, we just took the the first job that had a reasonable quantity and threw it on there and ran it. And mm -hmm. from there, we've just been we've been trying to feed it ever since. <laughs> How many robots do you have now in the shop? We have three currently. So, and I expect to add one or two more this year. Do you have any in the quality area yet? We don't have any robots in quality. Um, our CMM is programmable, so we've got a five-axis CMM that can, uh, that a lot of times on complicated parts runs for quite a while anyway, uh, but we don't have any automation in the, in the five-axis I, yeah, I did a podcast with CSI Group in Massachusetts, and they actually have a video on their website where they're using automation in okay. the quality and it was a really simple yet 
quite effective application for a robot. And I yeah, I, I would think so. Yeah. I bet uh, collaborative robots are probably really good in quality too, because a lot of times you don't have a lot of space in your in your quality mm. lab. Right. So collaborative robots are, are probably huge for that. What? I'm really curious because most shops don't have robots. We didn't have any robots. Again, for a shop owner who is thinking, I want to try automation. I want to try a robot. What path would you suggest as one that will lead them to success at a reasonable cost to start? I, I'm a little more reserved on this one. Um, because I think it's easier to get burned on robots than on something like five-axis machining. Five-axis okay. five mill is, is a fancy three-axis mill. You know, it's, it's still the same process. Um, I think that there's, there's probably a good fit for automation in anybody's shop. Um, we automate jobs down to 50 pieces, so we do pretty low-volume automation. Hmm. Um, but there's still, it still seems like there's a lot of misinformation out there about automation. So I, I think you just have to do your homework and look into it. There are now a couple uh, companies out there that are selling really reasonably priced uh, automated robot cells just for machine tending. Um, so do, you know, do you know the names of those? Um, I know um, we, our second robot we got, we actually bought a cell because, we uh, went through all the effort of doing it ourselves the first time mm. and decided we want to do that again. So we bought a cell and we bought that from Aceta, Um and that cell has been awesome. It's, uh, it's got a FANUC robot and it's got four drawers that it can pull out and load parts off of each drawer. Um, so those guys make really good cells in general. And then another one, another company that's doing really nice cells is Gossiger. Um, I think they're based out of Ohio. Um, and they've got a robot cell now that I think they're selling for right at or just a little under a hundred thousand dollars. So um, that's that's about as reasonably priced as I think you're going to get on a robot cell right now. And they have a lot of they have a lot of fancy interface stuff on their on their robot cell to make it easy to set up short running jobs. But there are there's still limitations. The thing that's I think everybody should get into robots, but the thing that's really interesting about robots is they are dumber than the box of rocks. They mm -hmm. will do the same thing over and over and over again absolutely perfectly. They don't have any issues. The problem is always your setup. It's how reliable and repeatable is your setup. If you can't mm -hmm. make it repeatable to where you could do it with your eyes closed, uh, standing backwards, loading it with, you know, Mm -hmm. you're off hand, then it's probably not repeatable enough for a robot because they are, they don't, you know, they don't feel what's going on. They, they do the same motion over and over again. So getting a repeatable process is probably the biggest trick. And it's something that we've gotten really good at. And I think anybody can get really good at it, but it's, it's definitely a little bit more of a learning curve uh, than your typical machining process. So, but yeah, I, once again, I'd recommend to get into it. I'd recommend going with somebody who's selling a, a cell dedicated or that's specifically designed for machine tending, because kind of like with a five-axis mill, even though I think it's a little more a little more 
complicated to wrap your head around. It's not a complicated process mm-hmm. overall, and those guys are really dedicated to making sure you do a good job with it and you succeed. Um, right. And from what I've seen and what I've heard and from the guys I've talked to, um, they'll put in a lot of extra time just to make sure that you do succeed with it. Um, but I don't, I don't think I'd recommend going our way and trying to do it yourself. It was probably cost-effective. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't even think I could really say it was cost effective. If I totaled up all the time oh. we sunk into that, yeah. uh, that's why we bought that's why we bought the cell the second time. I mean we did. We totaled up all the time that we had in it and we also totaled up all of the all of the opportunity costs we had of having another mm. machine running. You know, it took us a year to get it going. It mm. a cell would have paid for itself in that year if we mm. bought it and had it running in two months. It would have paid for itself before we got ours running. <laughs> So, Fair enough. Fair enough. So, so and, that's, and that is huge, too. I mean, the return on investment on, on robotic automation or machine tending is better than you would ever imagine. So, I want to talk about a little, a different type of automation. And one of the things that always drove me nuts about an owner is seeing folks walking around the shop looking for other people to ask questions <laughs> about typically a part, which means geometry, and the you are using the paperless viewer, and I'm going to ask you a second about that word, but the paperless viewer allows the annotation of 3D geometry and then the ability to chat to other folks, to send folks a message saying, what do you think about this feature? What tooling should we be using? Do we have this tooling in stock or do we have to buy it? And so if I was looking at that, I could highlight the hole and then I could write in a little chat box at Kurt and a message would appear on your computer, on your cell phone, depending how it's set up. And you would have the ability to respond on your own time, not when I'm looking for you. And also the that's recorded permanently so we have a history of the conversation tell us a little bit about how that's working for you do you do you see that that's how it's making sense in your shop yeah. uh, that's working that's working really well actually um, our it a lot of times it seems like something is uh, has a benefit to one person and not the other and this has been something where everybody on on that's involved in a project at all is benefiting from it. So our, our uh, project managers or estimators are able to send notes out to department leads or whoever they want to in the shop and ask a question about something they're quoting. You know, hey, what do you think about this specific feature? They can highlight the feature. They can put dimensions on it. They cannot. They can say, what do you think about this feature? And the guy who, uh, who they sent it to can open up the model, measure something if they want, Mm-hmm. Um, and respond to them about exactly the specific feature or detail they want. And having it as a solid model is great, too, because sometimes a project manager will send that out, and they'll have a note, and they'll say, what do you think about this, uh, this hole? It's kind of, it's kind of the, the depth-to-diameter ratio is a little, little crazy. Uh, what do you think? And they send it to one of our, one of our uh, machining leads out in the shop, 
And the response they get back is the hole is not a problem, but what about this other thing? <laughs> so you know, there's, there's so much more information uh, by, by working off the solid models instead. A lot of times before we started using that, we program off solid models. Uh, we use them for quoting. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but before we started using this, we would, we would still print off a print of the part and mm-hmm. walk around and show somebody. And inevitably, you get out there and you print it off, you have it zoomed in on the view you want or whatever, you get out there and you start showing them something and they're going, what about this? And you go, crap, I don't have the information I need. You have to, either you both go back to a computer and find it and look it up or the, the estimator go back and, uh, and print off you know, mm-hmm. more pages of the print or do something like that. Um, so it's, it's saving a lot of time and we're getting more information, uh, more information out of it. So, and it's saving you money because you don't have to buy additional CAD seats for folks to just essentially look at and take some quick dimensions off the geometry. Yeah, that's, that's huge as well. Cause you know, as you know, see the SolidWorks costs a small fortune. Especially if you're just going to use it, if you're just going to use it as a viewer once in a while, you know that adds up a lot. Um, so yeah, it's been really handy for that as well. So, yep. How is this different than some of the free viewers? Because the view, word "viewer" sometimes has a negative connotation. Um, I would say, I think the main difference is just the communication aspect of it. So, the my guys, nobody in the building, including myself, likes viewers for the most part because you can look it up. You might be able to snap a couple dimensions on it, uh, on your model, figure something out, but that's all you can do. You can't save those dimensions to show somebody else. You can't do anything with it. You look at it, it gives you a reference, and when you close it, all of that's gone. And so with this, we have the, the ability to snap a dimension on it and send a send a chat to somebody that actually has that dimension or highlighted surfaces or some kind of notes on it. Um, and like you said, that's recorded forever. So it still isn't an update to the CAD file itself, which is good because you don't want everybody updating a CAD right. file. That's, right. that's dangerous too. So, I mean, that's why viewers exist. Um, but a viewer without the ability to communicate doesn't do us much good. So the the ability to communicate with people in-house, customers, anybody else is really pretty cool. Yeah. I want to end with, I am curious about your curiosity and how you learn and where you come up with your ideas. Uh, well, I read a lot. Um, what sort I don't of stuff? read a lot of... Uh, like I said, I don't I don't read a lot of fiction. I do listen to a lot of audiobooks. If I'm doing fiction, I'm listening to audiobooks. Um, but I read uh, magazines and blogs. And which, which which magazines? I, which blogs? I I love Modern Machine Shop. I I feel like uh, it's a it's a really good place for ideas. They don't always they don't always have enough information to uh, get you from start to finish. But if you're just looking for ideas. Mm-hmm. You aren't going to find a more densely packed magazine for ideas, I think, than Modern Machine Shop. Um, so you could read one. I could read one one month of Modern Machine Shop and be researching stuff for the next year. 
so so uh, modern machine shop's great. Uh, cutting tool engineering. Um, I also read a lot of a, a lot about just kind of current events related to manufacturing. So I follow uh, uh, Society of Manufacturing Engineers. Um, they have a, a daily newsletter they send out, so I read that and a handful of other of the publications that they do as well. Um, so, so yeah, I I get information from manufacturing from all over the place. I mean, I follow a bunch of you know I'm not a I'm not old, but I'm old enough that social media is a little weird to me sometimes. And I you know I started uh, doing Instagram a couple of years ago. And once again, you know, I find all sorts of all sorts of information about new types of tooling and different cut strategies, different types of equipment, everything, just from watching Instagram. And I don't even I don't even feel like I'm working. <laughs> you know, I'm just, it's like like YouTube, but I can specifically choose my content, and it, I just get you know, I get you know, doused with information all the time. So even that. So I've got anything from just in depth, detailed stuff that I'm reading to kind of the lighter end of things with Instagram and anything else. But, you know, information's everywhere now. Are there any particular Instagram feeds that you follow that you could recommend? Because that's, you're the first person in manufacturing I've heard who uses Instagram as a way to learn about manufacturing technology. I, I'm actually looking right now because I, I, uh, I'm not good at listing all of that sort of stuff. And off, I will share with the listener because I'm I'm definitely older than Kurt, and I was with my son and we I was teaching him how to check the oil, and he didn't seem to be paying attention to me because he well, I made him figure out where the dipstick was, and he's on his phone and I'm getting frustrated and mad. And you know, why aren't you paying attention? And then he goes, hmm. And he goes over and, and pulls out, finds a dipstick and pulls it out. I'm like, what? And he went onto YouTube, YouTube, found the, the car and the model, and that's how he learned to do it. And so it taught me a lesson that learning that there's definitely the, the new tools out there like YouTube, like Instagram, the, the, the younger folks, everybody has a different way of learning. It just reinforces that. And the younger folks, there's some really powerful tools out there that I just don't naturally think of going there. So, mm -hmm. with that said, Instagram. Mm -hmm. If you, if you found a couple, so so I so I just went on there as I was looking. I was like, you know what? None of the none of the specific accounts I follow are are necessarily the key. I think the thing with Instagram, everything is linked with hashtags on Instagram. So yes. what you search for is, is specific topics. So on Instagram, you can, if you fall, if you search for CNC or milling or turning or, mm. um, or, I mean, they've got, they've got, there's a ton of people for CAD. If you just look up CAD or, pro, mm -hmm. or CNC programmer, um, things like that. There's, you start looking at those, and then it starts showing you things that are similar to that or things that you like. So my, my best advice, I think, on Instagram is just search for the things you're interested in, and okay. you'll, it'll start feeding you more, more of that anyway. Um, uh -huh. But also, any, any manufacturer that you 
that you buy stuff from. Uh, a lot of them have Instagram accounts now, so you can look up tooling manufacturers, machine tool manufacturers. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, look at Haas and Herco and and everybody else on there. I mean, Fanuc yeah. and Fanuc for robots and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, there it's it's kind of endless. I mean, there's a lot of these guys have millions of posts, so. Or the hashtag on millions of posts. I don't think most uh, accounts, individual accounts, have posted millions of things. So. Well, Kurt, I think this is a good place to wrap up. I love your energy and your enthusiasm for our industry, and I really like how you have defied some of the conventions and pushed the boundaries and the limits of machining and manufacturing, not accepting that can't be done just because it hasn't been it's always been done that way right so you follow your gut but you back it up with numbers and you gave us some great ideas on ways that they can look at automation at five axis different things about i think mindsets on how you can run your shop and perhaps even giving folks the permission to try something different. And that's really powerful. So thanks for sharing your story, inspiring me. What else is there that as we end, you'd like to share with shop owners? I don't really, I don't really know. I get, I think my, my one biggest thing is you've got to think outside of the box. One of our core values is innovation. Mm -hmm. And we encourage that with, with, Everybody in our shop, we encourage innovation on any task that you're doing. And as a as an owner, I think you're you're either a lot of people say you're either growing or you're dying, one or the other. Mm-hmm. And I my I twist that a little bit. I say you're innovating or you're dying. It's one or the other. You know, you can't just do the same thing you've always done. It's it's not going to work forever. Um, so innovation is key, and especially. Especially in the U.S., we've got higher costs, higher everything, and we've got to innovate to be able to keep up with the rest of the world. And and it just makes it more fun, you know. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel like I come into work to work. I like what I'm doing. It's a good time. And you know, if you get stuck in the same old thing all the time, I don't know a lot of people who enjoy doing that. So, I'll share with you a quote from a MIT professor that I heard back in the 80s that has stuck with me and that's innovate automate or evaporate yep that's pretty good once again you are way more concise than i am (laughs) well kurt where can people find you and wagner machine on the internet um our website is wagner-machine.com or wagner-machine.com um, mm-hmm. and we've got a lot of information on there. My contact information is on there. Um, my email address is kurt.wagner at wagner-machine.com. Um, and I am, I am seriously, I'd love to, I like quoting stuff and looking at jobs, but I almost equally, I like talking to people about machining and automation and anything else. So, uh, so yeah, I'm available to talk about anything, anytime, as long as it's related to manufacturing. Well, thanks for being so generous with your time today and that offer to our audience. And to the audience, it's time to be like a banana and split. Thanks for sharing some of your day with us. What are you going to do in your shop that might not be conventional? 
give it a shot, try something small, spend even just $100 to test a new idea and let us know how it goes. Until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a super day. Thank <laughs> you.